I'm Steve Becker. I'm a former district court judge in Reno County, Kansas, and I served three terms in the Kansas legislature. I'm Beth White. I'm a formal corrections officer and parole officer working for the state of Kansas for almost 10 years. And this is Cleared. Hey, Beth. Hi, Dad. You good this evening? I'm good. Yeah, that's good. We survived 4th of July. We did. We did. We had a good family uh, dinner. That we was did. great. You were a gracious hostess. Yes. For the big family, so that was great. And where are we? We are in the new, beautiful... Foxtrot Studio. We are. In downtown Hutchinson. Beautiful, scenic downtown Hutchinson. The studio uh, had a recent open house. It's, uh, yeah, it's a new thing. Our producer, Chris Acker, had everything to do with it. And, uh, yeah, I'm so pleased, uh, so pleased he's producing our shows and uh, we are very fortunate i'm glad we've got a professional studio to do it in a beautiful professional studio it's great it is it's great we're sitting next to a brick wall i love interior brick walls yes the vibes are good (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's true the stories not so much but the vibes that's good the vibes are good that's right Okay, so I like to open uh, each episode with an update from the National Registry of Exonerees. There have now been 3,178 exonerations since 1989, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Um, And that is 11 more uh, that have been posted since our last recording of this podcast. So, uh, yeah, those numbers uh, help educate our listeners as to how frequently this wrongful uh, conviction phenomenon occurs. Uh, I was hoping I could mention this next tidbit earlier um, in mid-June, but life got in the way. Um, So anyway, I want to mention an anniversary date of June 16, 1944. Last month was the 78th anniversary of the execution of the youngest person in the United States. Yeah, 
I think that's important. I think it's something we should know, and I think it's something we should remember. His name is George Stinney Jr., and he was arrested and tried and convicted of killing two young girls ages 11 and 7. The arrest occurred on March 23. The trial occurred one month later, April 24, and the execution occurred six weeks later, June 16. The whole case then spanned 85 days. It was a two-and-a-half-hour trial. There was no examination of state's witnesses. George Stinney was represented by counsel. There was no cross-examination of state's witnesses. There were no defense witnesses presented. There is no trial transcript. No appeal was filed. The jury deliberated less than 10 minutes. And, of course, young George Stinney was sentenced to death on June 16 of 1944. George Stinney walked into the execution chamber at the age of 14. He weighed 95 pounds, and he carried a Bible under his arm. Once in the execution chamber, of course, he was much too small for the electric chair. It didn't fit him, so they used the Bible to prop him up so they could proceed with the execution. There's also reports that as the current was coursing through young George Stinney, the hood that he was wearing that contained the electrodes slid down over his face. Yeah. I guess what pulls me, Beth, is that they used the Bible to prop him up in the electric chair. You know, like they used to do in barber's chairs. Yeah. To get him the right height. Well, when you see his mugshot, he is just he's a little he's a little baby. He's a little tiny boy. Youngest person ever executed in the United States, so and why are we talking about that on this podcast? Oh yeah. He was innocent. He did not kill those two young girls. He was posthumously exonerated in 2014, 70 years after he was executed. So he was murdered by South Carolina and Jim Crow. Heart-wrenching story. Man, I told you those vibes. (laughs) June 16th. George Stinney Jr. I'm going to remember that date, and I'm going to always mention it when it comes around. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> You've got a good case to follow it. Come on. <sighs> okay, that's Who's heavy. Who's profile case today? Well, today's going to be a little bit different. So we're going to profile Ronald Cotton, who is very special, and we're going to do it with a very unique perspective Uh, I have the very fortunate, usually when I research a case, I pull a lot of different media sources, videos, documentaries, what have you. 
This time I relied heavily on a memoir called Picking Cotton, our memoir of injustice and redemption, which was co-authored by Ronald Cotton and Jennifer Thompson. Ronald Cotton being the wrongfully convicted and Jennifer Thompson was the victim in one of those cases. So we have the very unique perspective of having Ronald Cotton tell his journey through arrest, trial, conviction, post-conviction and exoneration, and Jennifer Thompson, her story of crime, trial, and conviction. So Ronald and Jennifer's worlds collided in July of 1984. Jennifer was the type of girl that everyone wanted to be. She was beautiful. She was smart. She was funny. She was going places. She was just a year shy of having her degree with a 4.0. She had a boyfriend that was in business school, a real up and comer. They had plans to be engaged soon. She had her dream wedding planned out, their house, their future, what he was going to do. She had everything planned out. She just needed to finish school with her 4.0, which is what she had planned. And she did what she had planned because that's what her, that's what her life was going to be. She was that type of person. She was goal orientated and she did what she set out to do. That particular night in July, her and her boyfriend, Paul had a date night. They went out to a local buffet. Maybe it was the MSG and the food, or maybe she just ate too much, but she had a headache. So her and Paul, they went back to her, her own apartment. She worked really hard working two jobs to afford her own private place so she could have some independence. Paul had put her in bed. He went to college a town over, so he stayed long enough for her to fall asleep, and he made his way out. A couple hours later, Jennifer was awoken because something was off in the room. She noticed something. Instinctively, she drew the covers over her head, and before she knew it, somebody was on top of her. It was a man. He was wearing white gloves. In one hand was a knife, and in the other was a flashlight. He said to her, shut up or I'll cut you. She had a decision to make. She made the decision to live. As he proceeded to sexually assault her, she made note of every single scar, of every single hair, of every single pore, freckle, everything. She was going to remember him and she was going to catch him. After he got done assaulting her, she knew she needed to do something because she was not going to do that again. Somehow she convinced him by saying, I'm just so uncomfortable around knives. If you can just throw it outside or put it on my doormat, I promise I will let you back in. He agreed to it. They walked through their living room and she kind of looked around through the darkness and she noticed her photographs were everywhere. Letters from her brother who was away on a trip were everywhere. He had been there a long time going through her stuff. He went outside and dropped the knife and she wasn't quick enough to lock the door. And he was back inside already fiddling with her radio, trying to get it on. He told her to go make a drink for her in the kitchen. She turned on the faucet. She needed to find another way out of there. That's when she looked at the back door. That's how he got in. He broke in through the back door. 
just as she noticed that. He mentioned, is that back door still unlocked? And before he knew it, she was out out of there, knocking on her neighbor's door. It was the middle of the night. No one was up. She couldn't wait there. She kept going. She lived in a big carpet complex. She could see through the trees, there was a light on across the apartment complex, and she could see people. She ran to them, naked, banging on their doors. Thankfully, the woman noticed her. Hey, she's a student from the local college. Let her in. They let Jennifer in, and she could just barely make out that she had been raped. And that's the last thing she remembered before the detectives got there, either passing out from stress or exhaustion or all of it all together. The next thing she knew, she was at the hospital. An older doctor was there. He was not happy about it. More than likely, he had been woken up or whatever, but he was not happy to be there for sure. He performed the rape kit, and she was talking to the detectives. Her boyfriend was there. Her younger sister was there. Even though her sister was significantly taller and tougher, she was there with Jennifer too. She heard crying from another exam room. She had asked the detective, what, what, what was going on over there? She eventually learned that the woman in that next exam room had also been raped. She'd been raped by the same person. That victim hadn't stayed still. She'd fought back. And the assailant had beat her and beat her pretty good. Thankfully, Jennifer... Being the person that she is, she being determined to be able to recognize him and catch him, she did whatever she could. She went with the police to the police station and immediately started in with a sketch. She was going to catch this guy. This was her job. This is why she didn't fight back. She was going to catch him. She went to work. Not those eyebrows, a little bit bushier. Yeah, that's it. Went in with the nose. Finally, they had a sketch. They had released it everywhere. It was big news in her small town. Two white women raped in just a span of a couple of hours by a black man. The next day, they brought her in. They showed her a series of pictures. And by her accounts, it had to be one of them. Why would they be showing her pictures if it wasn't one of them? It was her duty to pick them. If she did not pick one of these men, he was going to come after her. He was going to kill her if she did not pick one of these men. So she picked one. Just a few days later, it's lineup time. And according to Jennifer in the book, it's not like it was on TV. There was no wall. There was no glass mirror. She was walked into a conference room. The only thing separating her and this lineup of six men was a conference table. Just Jennifer, the police detectives, a conference table, and these men. Can you imagine how overwhelming. She had just been sexually assaulted. The event that would single-handedly change the course of her life forever had occurred. And she's standing in front of somebody, men that she is led to believe are the ones that did that to her. So they went through the lineup and they had her say, they had the men say, shut up or I'll cut you. They went down the lineup, each one Number five said, shut up or I'll kill you. And according to Jennifer, she took note because she said, he must be doing that on purpose. There's no way he wouldn't just say, shut up or I'll cut you. He must have said, shut up or I'll kill you on purpose. Eventually, she picked number five. It had to be number five. She was sure. She made notes. She was perfect. She lived a perfect life. She had a 4.0. 
She was perfect. It was 100% him. She knew it. The second victim went in. Same situation. Only thing separating the second victim from the men, conference table. She was very emotional, obviously. She wasn't able to identify anybody. It was between number four and number five. So, because of the eyewitness testimony that Jennifer provided, they arrested number five, Ronald Cotton. Now, Ronald, he was no stranger to the law. He had a lot of siblings. He grew up with his mom. His dad wasn't in their lives. He was with somebody else. So he wasn't with his mom, but he was always around when he needed him. Just a few years prior, he had been arrested for first-degree burglary charges and attempted sexual assault. The story behind that, according to Ronald, was that he was dating this local friend of a friend. She was white. He had a little bit too much to drink one night, and he went over to her house, stuck into her room to surprise her. Well, when he got in there, she was a little bit too surprised and woke up her parents. Her parents weren't too keen to seeing a black boy in their daughter's bedroom, so they called the cops. He left thinking not too much of it. About a year later, police show up trying to arrest him for it. Talks to his attorney. The attorney says, you better take this deal or you're going to look at 10 years, if not more. So he did what his attorney told him to. He took the deal. Just did the 18 months to be done. Well, when this sketch came out, the police sketch came out for the two rapes in this local town of the white women. Police came looking for him at his mom's house. He didn't think anything of it. He'd been partying with his friends. He had went to the local club. He knew it wasn't him. He told his mom, I'm just going to go down to the station and clear it up. It's not a big deal. How many times have we heard that? He showed up at the police station. They asked him about it. Mr. Cotton, do you have an alibi for that night? July 29th, 1984? I sure do. I was out at the club with some friends. Told him the whole story about meeting up with somebody afterwards, giving people rides home, gave him a list of about 10 people that would collaborate his story. Well, after that, they didn't let him go. He's thinking, what the heck is going on? They kept him. Got to thinking, oh, shit. That wasn't this weekend. That was the weekend before. They're going to go check my alibi, and none of those people are going to back me up. That's not hap- That's not looking good. The next day, he went into the lineup. The attorney told him he didn't have to. He said, I didn't do it. I'm going to go in there, and I'll be set free. His attorney said, yeah, but if she fingers you, that's it. Ronald said, don't worry about it. I didn't do it. Then I'll be on my way, and this will be all over with. Unfortunately for Ronald, Jennifer fingered him. During the trial, the evidence that was presented against Ronald, there was only enough to charge him with Jennifer's rape. The second victim was unable to identify him. During the crime, there was a flashlight that was able to be identified by Jennifer. 
Upon searching Ronald's house, they found a flashlight that Jennifer believed to be very similar to the one that was used during the commission of her sexual assault. Also, when Jennifer's house was searched, a small piece of white rubber was found. When Ronald's house was searched, they found white shoes with chunks of white rubber missing on the bottom. Really, at the trial, the nail in the coffin was 100% Jennifer's testimony. She was clear, concise, and 100% believable. She was the perfect witness. There was no doubting her testimony. She spoke the truth and she believed it. It didn't take the jury very long at all, and Ronald was convicted on January 16, 1985, just a few short months after the rapes occurred. Ronald went to prison, couldn't believe he was convicted of a crime he didn't happen. Didn't know what to do. Trying to adapt to life, not with his family, not with his friends, just 22 years old. He was only at prison for a couple of months. When he was out on the yard playing handball and he, he noticed somebody, he looked familiar. He told his friends he'd be back for a second and he went and asked, hey, what's your name? Poole, where are you from? Hey, he's from the same town Ronald was. That's weird. And then it dawned on him. That guy looked exactly like the police sketch of the rapist of those two women. And he was from the same town. Come to find out, he was in there for rapes and burglaries, just like what was happening to the women that Ronald was in there for. Ronald was convinced that this Bobby Poole was the one that committed the rapes against the women. So it became Ronald's mission to get this in front of a jury, to get this evidence in front of his attorneys. He was in visitation one time, and Bobby Poole, the one that Ronald believed to be the actual rapist, saw his sister visiting him. And he said, hey, Ronald, your sister's kind of cute. You think you can give me your number so I can try and date her? Ronald, at this point, furious, because he knew Bobby Poole at this point had done it in his mind, said, yeah, I don't think she'd want to date you unless she saw what you look like. Why don't we take a picture? So Ronald and Bobby took a picture, and Ronald, instead of sending it to his sister, as he told Bobby he would, sent it to his attorney so his attorney could get to work on trying to see if they could do something with it. And they did. They started interviewing people. And wouldn't you know, Bobby Poole wasn't too quiet at the prison either. He started telling other inmates that Ronald was in doing time for his crimes. Just four years later, Ronald's conviction got reversed and he got a new trial. He got brought back to his district court for a new trial and the evidence was going to be brought before the judge to decide whether or not they were going to allow this new Bobby Poole testimony to be brought in. Because while Bobby Poole was in the same prison as Ronald Cotton, he was telling everybody that he was the one that raped Jennifer and the other victim. So the judge had jailhouse informants come in and testify to it. Despite Bobby Poole always wearing white gloves during his crimes, despite him leaving underwear on the victims, despite him having the same blood type, because we're still in blood typing in the 80s, as the assailant and Jennifer and the other victims case, despite him using a knife 
in a flashlight, just like in Ronald's case. The judge ruled that it wasn't enough for the jury to hear that testimony. So Ronald's attorney was not allowed to present that there was possibly another person that committed these crimes other than Ronald Cotton. So the second trial, they were not allowed to present any of the jailhouse testimony about Bobby Poole admitting to the crimes. And despite that, not only were they not allowed to present Bobby Poole testimony, the second victim now was able to identify Ronald Cotton as the person that sexually assaulted her. She now remembered Ronald Cotton to be the one. She said that she remembered it all the time. She was just too afraid. So they entered the second trial. The second victim got on the stand, pointed her finger at Ronald Cotton and said, yes, he is the one that raped me. So despite his first trial being overturned, his second trial yielded him two life sentences instead of just one. During the second trial, both Jennifer and the second victim were asked, do you recognize Bobby Poole? Both looked at Bobby Poole, including Jennifer, and said no. Both of them were asked, who is the man that raped you? Both of them looked at Ronald Cotton and said, he is the man that raped me. Ronald Cotton went back to prison, again, defeated an innocent man returning to prison. He spent more years fighting, losing appeal after appeal. His anger started to subside. He eventually thought he needed to take matters into his own hands. If the courts weren't going to grant him his freedom, he was going to get his revenge on Bobby Poole. He got what he needed to to fashion a prison shank. He was in the same dorm room as Bobby Poole, and he was going to kill him. His dad had been very consistent with visiting him, and he told his dad his plans. And his dad is the one that stopped him. He said, son, you are in here an innocent man. If you kill Bobby Poole, you deserve to be in here. He thought about it and his dad was right. It took him a little bit, but he got rid of it, saying he now he could have sold that weapon for 30 or $40, but instead he found a drain and he dumped it down there. And that was that. After that, he knew, you know what? People are caged on the outside. So he was going to change his mentality on the inside. He started attending church, he got involved in choir, and he did what he could to pass the time. He hated asking his family to send him money, so instead he started making prison wine and selling it. He still had hope that maybe one day he could be free, but he put it on the back burner and lived his life as he could inside. This whole time, the Department of Corrections continued to move him from one prison to another prison to another prison, going back and forth between open and closed custody, and even at one point, transferring him out of state from North Carolina to Tennessee. His parents were getting older, and it was harder for them to travel. So him being transferred to Tennessee against his wishes meant he didn't get to see family. He had no say in it. Then started the O.J. Simpson trial, and this is where his luck would turn. According to Ronald Cotton, everybody incarcerated at that point was obsessed with O.J. Simpson's trial. Would they get the juice or not? And the one thing that stuck out to him about O.J. Simpson's trial was that weird evidence, that DNA evidence. He was going to ask his attorneys about it. And he did. He asked his appellate attorneys. And they said, you know... We're just your attorneys. If you want us to press for it, we can. But here's the thing. If you're not innocent, it's going to show it. Do you really want us to proceed with that? 
Without a beat, Ronald said, absolutely. So they did. They started filing petitions for it. Now, Ronald had already lost his appeals on his state level. He wasn't available for appeals on his federal level. So by procedure, the county could have already destroyed all of the evidence for that case. But by some miracle, they had not. There were still bedsheets from the crimes. In both instances, there was still evidence. And they were able to secure it, his attorneys. And they were able to send it off for processing. Now, the cases had been combined because they believed that they were both perpetrated by the same person. The DNA evidence was sent back. There wasn't enough evidence in Jennifer's case. The only DNA they were able to secure was that of her and her boyfriend. And hers had been so degraded that they needed another DNA sample from her. But in the other victim, they were able to secure a DNA source. Ronald was in Tennessee at the time, a state away. He was called into the warden's office. Now, according to Ronald, you were only called into the warden's office if you were in serious trouble or somebody died. He was terrified it was one of his sisters or his dad. He was preparing for the worst. He sat down in the warden's chair thinking, please don't let it be my sister. Please don't let it be my sister. The warden says, well, you're innocent. You're going home. Now tell me which one of these guards is smuggling in stuff. Ronald said, excuse me? I'm not being your snitch. He was immediately escorted out. The next day, they handcuffed him. North Carolina came to get him to transport him back to North Carolina. On the way back to North Carolina, the transporting officer stopped at McDonald's and offered to get Ronald something to eat. He didn't know what to get. It's been 11 years. I don't know. He said, I was number five in the lineup. Just get me a number five. He said, nothing has ever tasted better in his life than those McDonald's fries. He got back. He still, keep in mind, has no idea what's going on. They said that he's innocent. He doesn't, is that true? Is this some sort of weird trick? The last time he went to court, he got another life sentence. He, He has no idea. He shows up in court. They tell him his family's here. My family's here? I don't know what's going on. He gets in the courtroom and he finds out that they found DNA evidence and it was Bobby Poole from the rape kit, not his, and that they went and talked to Bobby Poole and he confessed to both of the rapes and that today he was going to be released. He was going to get to go home with his family. 11 years later, he gets into the courtroom, handcuffed and shackled. The bailiff said that she would refuse to remove their handcuffs and shackles unless it was a direct order from the judge. Thankfully, the judge came in from chambers, issued a direct order to the bailiff, waited until the shackles and handcuffs were removed, and then went back to his chambers. The whole process lasted, he said, very short, maybe 10 10 minutes, and he was allowed to leave. 11 years he spent incarcerated for something he didn't do. He got a 24-hour notice before he was released. And then just like that, it was over. He was free. He walked out a free man. Now, on the other hand, Jennifer, this story goes a little bit different for her. She had her whole life planned out for her. She was for sure it was Ronald Cotton. The trial came. Her whole family didn't know how to talk to her. The night after the incident happened, like so many other times we hear about sexual assaults, I mean, even today, especially in the 80s, it reminds me a lot of, I don't, Dad, did you ever listen to any of the I'll Be Gone in the Dark 
the Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer? No. Did you read any of that? I did not. Any of the victims? A lot of the rape cases from the 80s where the families or the husbands or the spouses just didn't know how to cope or respond to their significant others being sexually assaulted. It's kind of what Jennifer had to go through. Her family didn't talk about it. Her mother left her gift well cards and flowers. Um, She was asked maybe because she worked at the local gym and wore tight outfits, maybe if that's why she was raped. She was asked if she didn't fight back, did that mean she enjoyed it? She was traumatized in so many different ways. The The manner in which she was treated is just horrific. The way she was victimized, there wasn't a whole lot of support for her in that process. There was detectives that were for her, followed her along the life of this case, the 11 years of this case, that she got a lot of support from. But family and her boyfriend at the time, there wasn't a lot there for her. So during the case, she was the one that had to be the strong one. She was told that the other victim was not able to identify anybody, so it was up to her. So from the beginning, she knew that if she was not able to identify anybody, nobody would be convicted, and then they were going to be out there. Whoever it was, whoever this person was going to be out there, and they were going to have their target set on her. So in her mind, if she did not go into this photo lineup, if she did not go into this ID in person lineup, if she did not go into this courtroom and ID somebody, she was putting her life in danger. So there's problem number one with eyewitness identification. She feels as though, one, the person up there obviously has to be guilty, otherwise they wouldn't be before me. And two, if I don't do this, I'm putting my life in jeopardy. That's not a position she should ever be put in, you know? I mean, that's that's problematic to begin with, putting that much pressure on her and her memory. The second trial that comes around and them approaching her, she had just vaguely started her life again. Her and her college boyfriend had obviously the one that she was with when the initial assault happened had not made it. They had not lasted. Um, So she had gotten married and just had kids when the second trial happened. So she was just putting her life back together and boom, here's this new trial. She has to testify again. She has to tell her boss because she hadn't told anybody in her new life about this very traumatic experience. And then boom, re-victimizing her again. And putting her in the courtroom with her again and her commentary on how she felt that this was just another tactic to drag out the system. And it's just, the book is so well written and she is not mincing words at all with the way she felt. There is a very amazing interview she does with herself and Ron talking about every day of those 11 years, every night when she went to bed, she wished that Ron would die a horrific, painful death. And before he had a horrific, painful death, she wanted him to lose the most precious, valuable thing in his life before he had that horrific, painful death. 
That's the level of hate that she had in her heart for him. And that's the level of certainty that she had that he was the one that committed this violent, horrific assault against her. That's how certain she was of her memory. And to know how wrong it was, how wrong it ended up, and how wrong your memory can be is just, I don't know. What's your thoughts, Dan? (laughs) It's a terrible story with a beautiful ending. Well, I was going to get to that. Yeah. But when you were just now talking about she felt pressure to identify someone, um, I think that pressure is throughout the uh, prosecutorial system. They had two rapes in the same area, just hours apart, and they believed it to be the same person. Everyone felt precious because somebody had to pay. And that is so, that's so natural. I mean, that's, but the result of that is, is when you feel that pressure, somebody has to pay. And then the police or the DA or and presents you with somebody, you're, you're compelled to identify that person. Yeah. I mean, okay, here's, here's somebody. Um, and I think the jury feels it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think when they're sitting there and they hear horrific details, they get to thinking somebody's got to pay. They wouldn't be sitting in front of me if they didn't do something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, just not and, right. And if, he wouldn't be here if he'd done something yeah. wrong. And somebody has to pay. And the state and the district attorney's office has presented us with somebody. All of that is influential. I yeah. mean, to, because of... Because of this pressure. The influence it has on people. We need to do something. And because of that influence, Bobby Poole, the actual rapist, went out to commit a series of very violent and vicious rapes. And just three months later was arrested, charged, and convicted of multiple life sentences of several more rapes after Jennifer and the other victim. So, Ronald Cotton is released. Um, He starts doing, it's a big deal. He's actually the first person in North Carolina to be exonerated based on DNA. It's relatively new. It's right after the OJ trial. So he's on Larry King. He starts getting all these press interviews. Jennifer is very hesitant. She, again, is a perfectionist. She had her life planned out. She, She is very type A. She... She has a lot, a lot of shame for... She feels like she let the entire police department down by this misidentification. She says that's first most what she's thinking, and then she's thinking, I stole 11 years from this man. I wished this man violent, horrific deaths for 11 years. And then that starts to settle in. 
So Ronald starts doing press interviews. He eventually gains employment through the same private DNA company that ran the DNA that exonerated him. He works for that DNA company where he meets his wife. So he meets his wife there. They eventually get married and have their daughter, Raven. So about two years after his exoneration, they do, Jennifer does a television show, What Jennifer Saw, where she agrees to talk about her misidentification of Ronald. And she only agrees to do it if she doesn't have to have contact with Ronald, because at this point, she's still afraid that Ronald might be angry with her or might come after her. Because at this point, she is married and has triplets, and she's she's just very full of anger still and hasn't, she hasn't processed the situation and hasn't been allowed to. So the documentary airs, and by even the police detectives are telling her, by all accounts, everybody is telling her what an amazing man Ronald is, and she has nothing to worry about. So she finally watches the show, What Jennifer Saw, and she sees Ronald on camera, and she sees his warmness and his kindness, and she instantly knows she wants to meet him. So the date's arranged. She talks to the detectives. They arrange the date, and it's set for April 4th, 1997. They have a meeting at a church. It's very hush-hush because they don't want the media to get involved because at this point, it's still fairly new for exonerations, very new for DNA exonerations. They have a two-hour meeting, and Jennifer says she walks in. She's super nervous until she sees him, and then she sees him get out of the car, and instantly she knows, there's no way that's the person that raped me. He is so tall because Ron's 6'4". She initially said the assailant was 5'9". So they meet and she says, I don't know how I could live every day for my rest of my life trying to apologize to you. And Ron stops her and says, I'm not mad at you. I will never be, you never have to look over your shoulder looking for you, me. I just want us to have happy lives. And they embrace and they hug and they spend the next two hours telling each other about their experiences. She asks about prison. He asks about her family. And that's that. They think that's going to be the end result of their meeting. Shortly thereafter, um, Jennifer starts calling Ron for all their TV experiences because she wants Ron to come with her. And before you know it, she starts bringing her triplets with them. And then one of her triplets wants to ride with Ron in his truck. And then next thing you know, they're doing long trips together and they're going on long vacations and they're going to family get togethers and they're spending holidays together and Ron's showing up at soccer games. And five years later, they're writing a book together. And 10 years after that, she's introducing him on a presentation. And this is what she has to say about Ronald Cotton. The one person I had prayed to die would be the one person who would teach me to live. He would be the one person to show that love and hate can't coexist in the same human heart. That you can't be an angry person and a peaceful, loving person. Ronald would eventually lead me to forgive Bobby Poole. Not because he deserved it, but because I needed it to let me free. Ronald would be my mentor 
Ronald is my best friend. Wow. That's great. That's great. How wonderful. This has been a heavy episode. (laughs) What's so unique about this is they still, to this day, they talk, they go to each other's kids' events. They're extremely close. And the bond that they were able to form with each other is because they were both victims of Bobby Poole. Jennifer requested to meet Bobby Poole. He eventually died from cancer in prison. She sent a formal request to meet Bobby Poole. Um, and she had asked Ron about it. And Ron's like, he's not the, per- he's, he's a coward. He's not going to let that happen. They were the only two people in this world that were able to bond over that. And I don't know, just what a, what a beautiful story. And just like the most darkest places You know, what a man, Ronald Cotton. The character of of Ronald Cotton is reflected in some of our other exonerees that have been profiled on this podcast. That they, uh, when they are exonerated, they're not bitter. The compassion and uh, and empathy that. I don't know. I look at that, and it seems like that would be difficult. Uh, Not to be bitter over the experience, not to be Mm -hmm. angry with the people who placed them in that position. Um, But Ronald Cotton did not face all of that. No. When he was released, it was joyous, and it remained that way. And, uh, yeah, it says a lot about says a lot about Ronald Cotton. Um, Never met him, but I admire him. Yeah. If anybody's looking for a hero, I can give you some recommendations. Uh, uh, Yeah. Let's talk about the courtroom. I'm familiar with courtrooms. Let's talk. We have talked about in previous episodes uh, this phenomenon of cross- racial, eyewitness, misidentification. And it's a thing, um, but it's not common knowledge. You know, we do all this thing about wrongful convictions and each one of them begs the question, what can we do? What should be done? We, we need to, well, it'd be nice if we could eliminate wrongful convictions, but we need to reduce wrongful convictions. What we can do, what can we do? Well, this is something we can do, is to educate jurors about cross-racial eyewitness misidentification. It's supported by it's a, supported by 30 years of scientific studies. It's a thing. It, but we don't know about it. And the way we can educate jurors, edu- jurors need to know that this is a thing, and they need to consider it um, in, their, in their deliberations. And we, can do, and we can educate the jurors in two, jurors in two ways. Make this a jury instruction 
about cross-racial identification and allow expert witnesses to testify and educate the jurors about cross-racial identification so that they know this exists and they can consider it. And jury instruction means prior to deliberation. So when they go back to decide guilt or innocence, the prosecutor, defense, or judge tells them, hey, by the way. Yes. Before closing arguments, the judge instructs the jury in the law and also in the evidence, uh, how they should look at the evidence. In Kansas, uh, this issue has come up, been addressed by the Kansas Supreme Court. In issues uh, in Kansas, it's discretionary with the judge. Of course, (laughs) almost everything is discretionary with the judge. But in, uh, in the state courts of New York, the judge is required to give an instruction about cross-race identification when requested. So it's not discretionary. It's required whenever it is um, requested. And identification uh, in courtrooms itself, without the racial aspect of it, it's unreliable. Um, I know one one study that I reviewed said 75% of courtroom identification of the defendant is mistaken. And that's why uh, the court gives a cautionary instruction that addresses eyewitness identification um, generally. In Kansas, that instruction reads as follows. In weighing the reliability of eyewitness identification testimony, you should determine whether any of the following factors existed, and if so, the extent to which they could affect accuracy of identification by an eyewitness. And they list six factors. Number one, the opportunity the witness had to observe. This includes any physical condition that could affect the ability of the witness to observe, the length of the time of the observation, and any limitations on observation like obstructions or poor lighting. Number two, the emotional state of the witness at the time, including that which might be caused by the use of a weapon or a threat of violence. Number three, whether the witness had observed the defendants on earlier occasions, whether the significant amount of time lapsed between the crime charged and the later identification. Word to number five, whether the witness ever failed to identify the defendant or made any inconsistent identification. Six, whether there are any other circumstances that may have affected the accuracy of the eyewitness identification. So just general eyewitness identification, the judge is telling the jury, in my view, don't take it at face value 
look at all of the other evidence and whatever supports it. Um, you know, because it might not be accurate. Yeah, well, and Jennifer's, I mean, there, I'll leak, there's a YouTube video for the book too. And it, I mean, she was just, she was the perfect witness. She wasn't overly emotional. She was articulate. She was eloquent in her speech. She was the perfect witness. She spent all of her time analyzing his facial characteristics and she got it wrong. I mean, there's no, I mean, your mind does stuff. It's not, a per, it's not, it's not perfect. That's, you know, there needs to be more than eyewitness testimony. It's not perfect at all. And all, and all we would need to do is add one more factor to that instruction. And what has been proposed is that that one more factor would read as follows. The witnesses, they are to consider this. The witness's familiarity or lack of familiarity with people of the race or ethnicity of the accused. That, you know, that should, we need to tell the jurors that you need to look at this cross-racial identification. <laughs> I don't care what race you are. You are not good at identifying individuals of another race. Yeah, it's it's across the board, and uh, we need to tell jurors that in instructions by the judge, and we also need to allow that expert Witness witnesses test to testify in front of a jury that this is a real thing. Yeah, this is a true phenomenon, and uh, they need to consider it. Uh, and I think that would help. There's so many of our cases, Beth, that we profile um, involve misidentification. So there is something we can do if we could just get the uh, judicial branch of the state of Kansas to adopt these two, uh, these two things. I will say, on a positive note, another positive note, despite the friendship between Jennifer and Ronald, there was no um, prosecutorial misconduct in this case. So that's always a positive. Um, do you have anything to, before we close up, anything Not else? Not only pro there was no pros prosecutorial misconduct, but it seemed like the uh, detectives involved in the case and their interaction was with Jennifer was they were very above good. board. They were very good with Jennifer. They Jennifer kept in touch with them. There was a close bond between them and Jennifer for over the years. They they maintained a good friendship. I think it's important that we point that out because in most yeah, that's not always the case of our yeah episodes. That's yeah. not the case. Yes, um, just a few tidying up things. Ronald celebrated his 27th anniversary of exoneration on June 30th. So he has been free for 27 years as of last week. So happy exoneration to him. Happy exoneration, Ronald. Yes. Again, the book is Picking Cotton, our memoir of injustice and redemption. It was extremely powerful. It goes back between Jennifer's perspective and Ronald's. It's very, very, very good. I highly recommend 
Um, if you want to find us, we're cleared pod on Instagram and cleared podcast on Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Um, please like review rate all those things. Uh, until next time. Thank you. Oh, what do you need, Dan? I was just going to mention that, uh, on our Facebook page, we will have the mug shot yes. of George Stinney Jr. The 14 year old that was executed. Uh, I'm yes, put, I, I would encourage you to look at George Stinney. Yeah, and then maybe eat some ice cream afterwards because it is very depressing. At least that's my go-to mood stabilizer is ice cream. So thank you. Thank you. Assault City Sound Production.